0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain, chapter 30, Sketches by the way. It was a big river below Memphis, banks brimming full everywhere and very frequently more than full the waters pouring out over the land, flooding the woods and fields for miles into the interior, and in places to a depth of fifteen feet, signs all about of men's hard work gone to ruin, and all to be done over again, with straitened means and weakened courage. A melancholy picture, and a continuous one, hundreds of miles of it, Sometimes the beacon-light stood in water three feet deep, in the edge of dense forests which extended for miles without farm, woodyard, clearing, or break of any kind, which meant that the keeper of the light must come in a skiff a great distance to discharge his trust, and often in desperate weather. Yet I was told that the work is faithfully performed in all weathers, and not always by men, sometimes by women, if the man is sick or absent the government furnishes oil and pays ten or fifteen dollars a month for the lighting and tending. A government boat distributes oil and pays wages once a month. The Ship Island region was as woodsy and tenantless as ever. The island has ceased to be an island, has joined itself compactly to the main shore, and wagons travel now where the steamboats used to navigate. No signs left of the wreck of the Pennsylvania, some farmer will turn up her bones with his plough one day, no doubt, and be surprised. We were getting down now into the migrating negro region. These poor people could never travel when they were slaves, so they make up for the privation now. They stay on a plantation till the desire to travel seizes them, then they pack up, hail a steamboat, and clear out. Not for any particular place. No, nearly any place will answer. They only want to be moving. The amount of money on hand will answer the rest of the conundrum for them. If it will take them fifty miles, very well, let it be fifty. If not, a shorter flight will do. During a couple of days we frequently answered these hails. Sometimes there was a group of high-water-stained tumble-down cabins, populous with colored folk, and no whites visible, with grassless patches of dry ground here and there. A few felled trees, with skeleton cattle, mules, and horses eating the leaves and gnawing the bark. No other food for them in the flood-waste-land. Sometimes there was a single lonely landing-cabin. Near it the colored family that had hailed us, little and big, old and young, roosting on the scant pile of household goods these consisting of a rusty gun some bed-ticks chests tinware stools a crippled looking-glass a venerable arm-chair and six or eight base-born and spiritless yellow curs attached to the family by strings they must have their dogs can't go without their dogs Yet the dogs are never willing, they always object. So, one after another, in ridiculous procession, they are dragged aboard, all four feet braced and sliding along the stage, head likely to be pulled off, but the tugger marching determinedly forward, bending to his work, with the rope over his shoulder for better purchase. Sometimes a child is forgotten and left on the bank, but never a dog. The usual river-gossip going on in the pilot-house. Island Number 63, an island with a lovely chute, or passage, behind it in the former times. They said Jesse Jameson, in the Skylark, had a visiting pilot with him one trip, a poor old broken-down superannuated fellow, left him at the wheel at the foot of 63 to run off the watch. The ancient mariner went up through the chute and down the river outside. And up the chute and down the river again, and again and again, and handed the boat over to the relieving pilot, at the end of three hours of honest endeavor, at the same old foot of the island where he had originally taken the wheel. A darky on shore who had observed the boat go by about thirteen times said, "Clare de gracious, I wouldn't be surprised if day's a whole line of them skylarks." Anecdote illustrative of influence of reputation in the changing of opinion. The Eclipse was renowned for her swiftness. One day she passed along. An old darky on shore, absorbed in his own matters, did not notice what steamer it was. Presently some one asked, "'Any boat gone up?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Was she going fast?' "'Oh, so-so, loafing along. Now, do you know what boat that was?' No, sah. Why, uncle, that was the eclipse. No, is dat so? Well, I bet it was. Cause she just went by here a-sparklin. Piece of history illustrative of the violent style of some of the people down along here. During the early weeks of high water, A's fence-rails washed down on B's ground, and B's rails washed up in the eddy and landed on A's ground. A said, let the thing remain so. I will use your rails, and you use mine." But B objected—wouldn't have it so. One day A came down on B's ground to get his rails. B said, "'I'll kill you!' and proceeded for him with his revolver. A said, "'I'm not armed.' So B, who wished to do only what was right, threw down his revolver, then pulled a knife, and cut A's throat all round, but gave his principal attention to the front and so failed to sever the jugular. Struggling around, A managed to get his hands on the discarded revolver, and shot B dead with it, and recovered from his own injuries. Further gossip, after which everybody went below to get afternoon coffee and left me at the wheel alone, something presently reminded me of our last hour in St. Louis, part of which I spent on this boat's hurricane-deck aft. I was joined there by a stranger who dropped into conversation with me, a brisk young fellow, who said he was born in a town in the interior of Wisconsin, and had never seen a steamboat until a week before. Also said that on the way down from La Crosse he had inspected and examined his boat so diligently and with such passionate interest that he had mastered the whole thing from stem to rudder-blade. Asked me where I was from. I answered, New England oh a yank said he and went chatting straight along without waiting for assent or denial he immediately proposed to take me all over the boat and tell me the names of her different parts and teach me their uses before i could enter protest or excuse he was already rattling glibly away at his benevolent work and when I perceived that he was misnaming the things, and inhospitably amusing himself at the expense of an innocent stranger from a far country, I held my peace and let him have his way. He gave me a world of misinformation, and the further he went, the wider his imagination expanded, and the more he enjoyed his cruel work of deceit. Sometimes, after palming off a particularly fantastic and outrageous lie upon me, he was so full of laugh that he had to step aside for a minute, upon one pretext or another, to keep me from suspecting. I stayed faithfully by him until his comedy was finished. Then he remarked that he had undertaken to learn me all about a steamboat, and had done it, but that if he had overlooked anything, just ask him, and he would supply the lack anything about this boat that you don't know the name of, or the purpose of, you come to me and I'll tell you," I said I would, and took my departure, disappeared, and approached him from another quarter, whence he could not see me. There he sat, all alone, doubling himself up and writhing this way and that, in the throes of unappeasable laughter. He must have made himself sick, for he was not publicly visible afterward for several days. Meantime the episode dropped out of my mind. The thing that reminded me of it now, when I was alone at the wheel, was the spectacle of this young fellow standing in the pilot-house door, with the knob in his hand, silently and severely inspecting me. I don't know when I have seen anybody look so injured as he did. He did not say anything, simply stood there and looked, reproachfully looked and pondered. Finally he shut the door and started away halted on the Texas a minute, came slowly back, and stood in the door again, with that grieved look in his face, gazed upon me a while in meek rebuke, then said, "'You let me learn you all about a steamboat, didn't you?' "'Yes,' I confessed. "'Yes, you did, didn't you? "'Yes? "'You are the feller that—that—' Language failed. Pause. Impotent struggle for further words. Then he gave it up choked out a deep, strong oath, and departed for good. Afterward I saw him several times below during the trip, but he was cold, would not look at me. Idiot! if he had not been in such a sweat to play his witless practical joke upon me in the beginning, I would have persuaded his thoughts into some other direction, and saved him from committing that wanton and silly impoliteness. I had myself called with the four o'clock watch, mornings, for one cannot see too many summer sunrises on the Mississippi. They are enchanting. First, there is the eloquence of silence, for a deep hush broods everywhere. Next, there is the haunting sense of loneliness, isolation, remoteness from the worry and bustle of the world. The dawn creeps in stealthily. The solid walls of black forest soften to gray and vast stretches of the river open up and reveal themselves. The water is glass-smooth, gives off spectral little wreaths of white mist, there is not the faintest breath of wind, nor stir of leaf. The tranquillity is profound, and infinitely satisfying. Then a bird pipes up, another follows, and soon the pipings develop into a jubilant riot of music. You see none of the birds. You simply move through the atmosphere of song which seems to sing itself. When the light has become a little stronger, you have one of the fairest and softest pictures imaginable. You have the intense green of the mast and crowded foliage nearby. You see it paling shade by shade in front of you. Upon the next projecting cape, a mile off or more, the tint has lightened to the tender young green of spring. The cape beyond that one has almost lost color, and the further one, miles away under the horizon, sleeps upon the water a mere dim vapor, and hardly separable from the sky above it and about it. And all this stretch of water is a mirror, and you have the shadowy reflections of the leafage, and the curving shores, and the receding capes pictured in it. Well, that is all beautiful, soft and rich and beautiful. And when the sun gets well up, and distributes a pink flush here, and a powder of gold yonder, and a purple haze where it will yield the best effect, you grant that you have seen something that is worth remembering. We had the Kentucky Bend country in the early morning, scene of a strange and tragic accident in the old times. Captain Poe had a small stern-wheel boat for years, the home of himself and his wife. One night the boat struck a snag in the head of Kentucky Bend, and sank with astonishing suddenness. Water already well above the cabin floor when the captain got aft, so he cut into his wife's stateroom from above with an axe. She was asleep in the upper berth, the roof a flimsier one than was supposed. The first blow crashed down through the rotten boards, and clove her skull. This bend is all filled up now, result of a cut-off, and the same agent has taken the great and once much-frequented walnut bend, and set it away back in a solitude far from the accustomed track of passing steamers. Helena we visited, and also a town I had not heard of before, it being of recent birth—Arkansas City. It was born of a railway. The Little Rock, Mississippi River, and Texas Railroad touches the river there. We asked a passenger who belonged there what sort of a place it was. Well," said he, after considering, and with the air of one who wishes to take time and be accurate, it's a hell of a place! A description which was photographic for exactness. There were several rows and clusters of shabby frame-houses, and a supply of mud sufficient to insure the town against a famine in that article for a hundred years. For the overflow had but lately subsided. There were stagnant ponds in the streets, here and there, and a dozen rude scows were scattered about, lying aground wherever they happened to have been when the waters drained off and people could do their visiting and shopping on foot once more. Still, it is a thriving place, with a rich country behind it, an elevator in front of it, and also a fine big mill for the manufacture of cottonseed oil. I had never seen this kind of mill before. Cotton cottonseed was comparatively valueless in my time, but it is worth twelve or thirteen dollars a ton now, and none of it is thrown away. The oil made from it is colorless, tasteless, and almost, if not entirely, odorless. It is claimed that it can, by proper manipulation, be made to resemble and perform the office of any and all oils, and be produced at a cheaper rate than the cheapest of the originals. Sagacious people shipped it to Italy, doctored it, labeled it, and brought it back as olive oil. This trade grew to be so formidable that Italy was obliged to put a prohibitory impost upon it, to keep it from working serious injury to her oil industry. Helena occupies one of the prettiest situations on the Mississippi. Her perch is the last, the southernmost group of hills, which one sees on that side of the river. In its normal condition it is a pretty town. But the flood, or possibly the seepage, had lately been ravaging it. Whole streets of houses had been invaded by the muddy water, and the outsides of the buildings were still belted with a broad stain extending upwards from the foundations. Stranded and discarded scows lay all about. Plank sidewalks on stilts four feet high were still standing. The board sidewalks on the ground level were loose and ruinous. A couple of men trotting along them could make a blind man think a cavalry charge was coming. Everywhere the mud was black and deep, and in many places malarious pools of stagnant water were standing. A Mississippi inundation is the next most wasting and desolating infliction to a fire. We had an enjoyable time here, on this sunny Sunday two full hours' liberty ashore while the boat discharged freight. In the back streets but few white people were visible, but there were plenty of colored folk, mainly women and girls, and almost without exception upholstered in bright new clothes of swell and elaborate style and cut, a glaring and hilarious contrast to the mournful mud and the pensive puddles. Helena is the second town in Arkansas, in point of population, which is placed at five thousand. The country about it is exceptionally productive. Helena has a good cotton trade, handles from forty to sixty thousand bales annually. She has a large lumber and grain commerce, has a foundry, oil-mills, machine-shops, and wagon-factories. In brief, has one million dollars invested in manufacturing industries. She has two railways, and is the commercial center of a broad and prosperous region. Her gross receipts of money, Annually, from all sources, are placed by the New Orleans Times Democrat at four million dollars. End of chapter thirty.